Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Town Hall, our newest open panel discussion podcast about tackling the internal issues preventing progress within the Black community. I'm your host and moderator, Brianna Rhodes, and today we will be discussing consumerism and ownership in the Black community. Before we begin, allow me to introduce my lovely panel of guests. First is Dr. Lucretia Taylor. Second is Tiffany Rosier. Hello. Hello. Third is Brandon Hull. Next is Dr. Marguerite Heinrichs. Next is Skylar Caesar. Hello. And last but not least, Mr. Victor Sandiford. All right. Hello. Thank you all so much for being available for this discussion. We have a lot to tackle during this episode, so let's jump right on in. So as I said, we are discussing consumerism and ownership in the Black community. And I want to start off by asking, what is the Black dollar and what value does it carry with brands and businesses? I could jump out the window and say the Black dollar is a myth. The Black dollar is um, just the same dollar as anyone else's dollar at. I think that um, it is a, an attempt to talk about cooperative economics, but fails um, theoretically, politically, and economically on a variety of levels. And so um, I do think that there is some value in um, talking about collective economics and cooperative economics among Black folks. But the Black dollar is, um, the, the middle Black family is worth a, a, a dollar in the United States. So if you're talking about what is a Black dollar, well, that's the average uh, wealth of a Black American family, less than a dollar. Mm -hmm. Would you kind of like, would you replace the Black dollar with the Black power, like the Black buying power? I think Black buying power is also a myth. I mean, mm -hmm. because, you know, everyone has the power to buy things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you're talking about spending power, that's just how much money everybody has collectively to spend. But, you know, the real wealth comes in ownership. Right. And so can we, the numbers we really need to be assessing to really look at what the position of, of the black community in, is in our ownership. Mm -hmm. And everybody knows that most black business owners are a party of one, meaning they have no staff members. Mm -hmm. I think what people are trying to get at, like with just consumerism and ownership in like the black community. It's like how much influence that we have on brands and how we make these companies rich. So say how like, you know, I don't know an example. I don't know why the first thing that popped up in my head is like Jordans, you know, black people love getting Jordans and we know how to make Mr. Michael Jordan rich. So how do you all think the influence of like our culture is on brands and making these corporate entities rich? I think it's more I think it's more about like the influence than it is about what you spend. So so black people have the currency where we make it cool. And by us making it cool, everybody else wants to buy it and everybody else buys into it. But when you actually talk about us actually buying it on the level, we're not consuming at the level that everybody else is, because that's crazy. If you put black people against everybody else in the world and what they're spending and purchasing, it just don't amount. It just don't amount. So I, I would say it's more about our ability to make things cool and our abilities to market things in a way that makes other people want to buy it and makes it desirable. Mm -hmm. Does anyone else have thoughts on that? 
I want to ask you all about just the trend of black ownership and versus like corporations and companies. So say if like, you know, people are big on sportswear like Adidas and Nike, but say if um, a friend or someone you know in your community has a black owned sportswear brand, they they'll rather support Nike or uh, Adidas compared to their brands. How what are your all you all's thoughts about that and being able to support black owned brands even though they're not as reputable or known um, as other I think I think that the black dollar uh, is also a myth because a lot of times when you are uh, supporting uh, a black owned business uh, you don't necessarily see that black owned business coming back to support the community that is supporting them so you'll have somebody who might have a successful black owned business, but then, you know, they're going to go buy Gucci or like Louis Vuitton or, you know, and nothing wrong with that. You know, if that, if that, if that's what you like, go for it. But I feel like it should be a little bit more cyclic, like as opposed to uh linear, like a one way street. Um, and that kind of disenchants me a little bit uh, with that. Uh, now I'm, I, I do support black owned business, but I, I do feel like, um, a lot of times, uh, as black people, we do have a more critical eye on our own when it comes to black owned business, but the flip side of that coin as well is that, you know, if you, it takes a lot to run a business and you, but you have to still maintain certain levels of professionalism that I know that I'm going to get if I go to, you know, uh, adidas or you know wherever else the case may be and there are just a lot of stories about like even when you do have a problem um like with a product or whatever you're you know purchasing from a person where you don't necessarily get that same quality treatment as you would from like these multi-million dollar companies so a lot of people are more inclined to say yeah i'm gonna go buy adidas because i know that if i get a rip in this then I can go take it back and like I'm, I can get another pair and there's not going to be any hassle versus if you go, you know, buy, you know, I don't know, a pair of shoes from your cousin Keisha or something like that. And, like that it's not right. It, it might be a little bit of a hassle, you know, uh, to get that back. And I also think that the resource level is not the same either to, you know, black owned businesses. They might not necessarily be able to afford to do that, you know, versus, a multi-million dollar company too. So that's also another factor as well. I think adding on to that, I think a lot of people buy things as a status symbol or a way to kind of flex. People want to look like they're doing well. So they're going to go out and buy the brand. I hate to say it, but they want to show that they're able to obtain something that maybe not everyone can. So I think everything mm -hmm. comes down to like classism. And in a way, it also comes back down to racism because you think about how that affects uh, what we are able to have. And then having certain things put to you a little bit closer to like whiteness in a way too. Mm -hmm. um, and the misunderstanding of what ownership is and what a black business is. I mean, oftentimes we think that these people own these businesses, but when you do a deeper dive into their financials, um, into the business structure, you realize that most of these folks are marketing managers. They mm -hmm. own, don't own the company. They don't own the liquor company. They don't own the merchandising company. They just don't. They're the face of it. And we've mm -hmm. got to understand that part of it as well. 
Well, how do you believe these Black-owned businesses can get support? Because I know something was mentioned about Black-owned businesses being under for, underfunded. How can they get the, the money to be able to make sure that we're cared for and make sure that they cater to their consumers? Community support, right? The SBA gives away like a, like 2% of its small business loans to Black-owned businesses. I mean, when you start really looking at the data, and you can ask any Black business owner, what happened when you went to the SBA? And they'll tell you, they gave me a bunch of brochures and I left still you know, not really knowing what to do. And so um, it's going to take like a, a large scale level of advocacy, you know, from layers of the community to really fund Black businesses at the levels that they are going to be required to compete. Mm-hmm. And so, I, when, uh, I was just going to add, just to add to it, I think, um, so there's a couple of things. One thing I think about is just this idea that we tend to look at supporting Black businesses as charity and not as it's actually like goods and services. Like, you, I give you money, you render me a good or a service. And when we look at it from that perspective, we'll be more inclined to support and, and help out these businesses as opposed to, like, well, not help out, but support the business or or patronize the business, right? As opposed to I'm supporting it and I'm just doing my duty. I think that's what we do. And I think when we think about it, it's just so hard for us to compete as a, as black businesses, like against a Nike or them because they're buying shoes at a, a, a $2 million, a, a 2 million quantity, right? And as a black business, you might be able to buy it at a, a thousand million, uh, thousands quantity if, if, if that. So when you're buying it at that much bulk, you're able to get it at such a price where you can sell it for cheap and it'd be quality and all that jazz. Whereas as a, as a small business, you don't have access to those kind of factories. You don't have the money. So when you do make it and you do make it quality, it has to be a bigger price. So then you start comparing me to Nike because my price is higher than Nike's and you don't really know my brand as opposed to Nike's brand and you have a, a history with them. So it's all these different things that, that plays into it. And I think when we start understanding that, that'll help us, I guess, support more or patronize more. And then lastly, I'll just say that I think the real thing is we have to think about cooperative co-ops and less about ownership in the sense that like I own hundred percent of this brand and it's just me. And how do we figure out a way that anybody that participates and work with that has some ownership where it's a collective thing that everybody has the ability to, to say what you do, how you do it. And then everybody gets to pull from the resources that comes with being an owner of something. I think if we did that more, we would be able to pull our resources together and create things where we all support it. So if 15 people own something, i.e. like me, I have a company called Run the World. If 15 people own Run the World, then you got 15 people going out there trying to make sure that it's supported as opposed to one person asking everybody and everybody's pulling from their different uh, resources. And that's just one way about co-ops. Co-ops are different in other ways, but that's just one specific way I think we could, as a collective, do better with black owned businesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think about systems, you know, and if you have like the example, 15 people participating in one business, the likelihood that you can afford certain accounting systems or certain services or certain X, Y, and Z because you're not being stretched so thin. I literally just sent two emails, that, you know, in the last two days to a black owned business where I, I ordered some goods and had I didn't receive a tracking number. I didn't receive a confirmation. I had to email them. They're like, oh, now your item is all of a sudden in transit. And it's I don't knock them, but it's systems. You know, it's systems. There's something that 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 didn't connect. So I think if there were opportunities to again share resources, like Victor was saying, so that we can make sure that we have systems. I also think that every every idea is not necessarily a profit making idea, and we have to have those conversations. I buy things because I like them because I have a preference for them. 
just because it's a hobby and you sold a few of them doesn't necessarily mean it needs to be a business. So we have to have realistic conversations and market to scale when the time is appropriate and you have systems in place. I was gonna, I was gonna piggy, I was right, I was going right there, Dr. Taylor. I love that. There. The um, passion projects have to stop. <laughs> one thing I will say is that inter-community challenges constantly for me, like, you know, I'm a person, like I'm a founder right now. I've helped other people start small businesses before. Um, I mean, I have a certification from Wharton School of Business for entrepreneurship. So I, I'm constantly viewing things in this way. And the one thing I will say is black people can help themselves by realizing that they don't know everything, um, allowing other people to show up in their lives and help them. I think one thing that we, again, working in a silo, being conditioned to work by ourselves on an island for everything um, in order to accomplish something is one of the things that has caused us a tremendous amount of harm. So even if the person doesn't show up with a check, if they've built a business to the scale you wanna build that business, allow them to speak into your life a little bit. <laughs> Take the advice. Um, if you've never done a SWOT analysis before and you don't even know what that is, somebody does. Somebody in your community who looks like you knows what a SWOT analysis is. Somebody knows how to pull financials and do a PL statement um, to help you forecast what your business might make. Um, somebody does, and you know, as much as we we put, I think black. Black thinking in general kind of pushes against certain systems because they have not done us any favors. They have not propped us up and they're just not safe spaces to be. I think now, though, we have enough black leaderships and people, black leadership and people who work in business to help people understand the ecosystem of building a successful business, whether it be e-commerce, whether it be regular business to business, business to consumer, whatever it is, someone has likely done something there that can give you some information. And I know there's always this kind of tension around, well, I already know what I need to do. I already understand my product. I already understand this. And it's like, but if that was the case, your profit margins would look like it and they don't. And you're constantly disappointed about the growth of your business because you don't allow people with the information you so desperately need to show up for you. And there are people who want to show up for you. They want you to win. And to your point, Dr. Taylor, not every side hustle and hobby needs to become a business because it's just not there. There are mechanisms around consumer relationships and marketing that I feel like we kind of take advantage of because we are such big influencers in the world that we don't understand having a micro relationship with your customer is the most important thing you'll ever do. When you when they place an order and you fire back an order confirmation that says, thank you for placing this order with us, we're going to take care of you. That's a relational thing. It has very little to do with how much that person spent and everything to do with will they spend more money in the future. But like, again, these are conversations you have to sit down with people who know how to do these things and who have done these things before so they can fill in your blind spots. And it's nobody out here trying to take the stuff you got. They're just trying to help you win because they won. <laughs> it's just like we have to, again, stop seeing each other as competition. And like when it comes to cooperative economics or, um, you know, or anything, any of those types of systems, they're not just about money. They are about helping people build successful businesses, which is not just about money. It's about relationships with your consumer. People go back to Chanel because Chanel creates an experience for you as a buyer, not just because they bought the sweater. It's because now you have a tag. Now you can say you went to Chanel. Now the, when you go into a Chanel store, it smells a certain way. It looks a certain way. Their staff has been trained to treat you a certain way. You walk away with a whole ass experience, not just the one little item. But that takes years of understanding that. Ralph Lauren started out by selling neckties door to door. 
And now you can get Ralph Lauren wallpaper on your wall. But him selling neckties door to door taught him about building a relationship. And then that turned into what we know as Ralph Lauren. So it's like helping entrepreneurs and black entrepreneurs start thinking that way. It's like it's how we think and not necessarily how we execute. I think black people got it all day on execution. We can get out here and be like, what you need? We, you, we've been hustling forever. So that part of the execution is not the problem. I think what we have to go back and re revisit our conversations around, how do we create experiences for ourselves and for each other? When you go someplace and you're really well, like how do I, you feel like I got really well taken care of when I go to my grandma's house and she gave me a plate of food. Can you capture that same feeling in a restaurant that is black owned and not feel like you've inconvenienced the entire staff because you came in there to order a plate of food? Like we need, those are the conversations about successful business ownership and running a successful business that I think we are very resistant to because we think we already got it. And it's just like, I've had enough interns in my work that I've had to literally just reprogram these children to understand that being talented is only part of the equation. <laughs> like that is only part of it. Having a great product is only part of the equation. The relationship's the bigger deal. And, you know, when they leave that, when they leave their time with me, the one thing they learned is like, oh, I got the job I wanted because I understood how to develop a relationship with my future employer and not necessarily that I was just super talented because that's not always going to get you everywhere. Mm -hmm. I want to ask this question, though, because we, we touched on this in like a previous episode, how we talked about the prosperity of black owned businesses during the Jim Crow era. Like there was nothing, it was not hard for you to find like a black doctor, black, black owned business, restaurant, everything. Um, you said everything that you said, Tiffany, right? And I don't I don't know if this is professional enough, but like or not, but how do we lose that sauce? Like, how do we get back to that? And um, how can we get that to contribute to our black economy in the US as well? I think we just bought into this idea that in order to make it, you have to make it alone. Again, I think that's part of like racial programming. I think that's part of systemic racial programming is that you do better by yourself. When we can look at people who are non-Black and realize that that is not how they exist. We built the business, we're passing it down to our kids. We built the house, we're passing it down to our kids. Like we realize that everybody around us does not work like that. Things are generational. Things are shared in community, like things are shared. Um, money is passed down. It's not like, oh, make it on your own. We'll see you when you get back. A kid graduates from high school, their parents buy their first car. A person gets married, their parents buy their first house. Because why? I don't want my kids being in debt when they first start their life. I want them to be able to continue the wealth going into the future. But what you do with, with um, Black people is like part of that oppressive um, conversation is do it by yourself. If you can get us to work in silo, if you can get us to work isolated, then you know you can get us, you can set us up for failure. And so we buy into this idea that in order to make it, you gotta make it alone. And that making it alone is even sexier than making it with a group. And so we've we have bought into this narrative that working alone and working by ourselves, like essentially killing our relationships with each other. Yeah. We can do things in relation, we can have relationships with each other. I think also we've been conditioned to think that white ice is colder. And so Anything that we we see somebody else do it has to be better than black shit. And it's always us saying, see, that's why I don't go to black restaurants because X, Y, and Z. But Gucci can make thousands of things that are racially uh, motivated and charged, and we'll give them a pass and go back to spending with them mm -hmm. after we didn't argued and typed our way to uh, to protesting for about a month or a week. We go back right to shopping at Gucci again yep. and H&M and all these other stores. But we don't practice none of the grace that we practice with them. 
with other black businesses. It's always, oh, because this black business, this is why I don't go to black business. So I think just that ideal alone has to be shifted and that can help us out. And that's relational, isn't it? Like having grace for something means you have a specific type of relationship with it and you're prepared to extend it more space and more room to make mistakes. That's what you do in a really good relationship or a healthy relationship. You make room for the other person to make mistakes. And well, so, to a degree. I think yeah, to a degree, we, though, because sometimes, like, we go to these places and we know they don't like us. We try to go, like, we, and we still go. Like, we go to the <laughs> restaurant, the, the hotel, the, the whatever you name it, the car dealership, and we know they're going to treat us a certain way. Even so much, we'll say, fuck it, I'm going to go put on a suit to go to the <laughs> bank so they'll treat me a certain way. Like, we so hell-bent on making these people believe and like and fuck with us that it is crazy. Like, that yeah. is crazy to me. And that, I think that's a reflection of our inner relationship of like how we feel about us. And not I so agree. Much. I mean, yeah. I think the fact that we don't hold them accountable for the reparations that we're owed is, mm -hmm. is a is a is a thing that we just continue to fall behind economically because we uh, started the race uh, very, very far behind. And when you don't get economic justice or restorative justice through economic repair, you're not going to be able to catch up. The, levy, the, the playing field is never going to be level because we refuse to hold them accountable for the reparations that are owed us. Remember, it's a debt that's owed, not a handout. I can't stress that enough. Yeah. And that's how I think of some of the work around AB 3121 is really important. The entire nation needs to follow California's lead. Mm -hmm. Brandon, I know you wanted to say something. Well, just uh, a collective of everything. Uh, I think that it leads back to if we're trying to get back to how things used to be, we have to kind of instill that sense of community, um, which we don't really have as much anymore. And if we're able to do that, then I think that um, it'll be like a domino effect, if you will. I know a lot of people complain about not supporting black businesses because they feel like, oh, well, this costs too much. Um, but the flip side of that is, you know, it costs a lot to create a business and it's probably going to cost you a little bit more if you are a, a black person. So uh, because we're not necessarily um, overall, we're not necessarily uh, in a place of financial prosperity already as it is. So things are going to have to be a little bit pricier. Um, but with that, I'm willing to spend more money on something if I know that I and getting that relationship or that experience. Um, and that's that's what is a big deal for me, you know? So I will literally walk out of a store. If I walk in and you don't greet me or ask me like how I am or something or acknowledge me in some kind of way, you don't have to worry about it, you know? And I've had, uh, and then the other thing I want to say is too, media. You have to be able, especially with marketing, we live in a world where you have to, you have to have something on social media and you really need to figure out a way to grab someone's attention within those first like five seconds, you know, because a lot of, a lot of the time we're just scrolling, right? Yes. And you have to be able to say, okay, this is how I'm going to bring, you know, somebody in and now I can grow my audience. You also have to know what your demographic is going to be, you know, is this an oversaturated market? People don't do research. They're like, oh, okay, this is a good idea. And it might be a great idea, but there's no point in doing it if there's like, not to say that you can't do it, but if you have, I don't know, like 
hundreds of other people that are doing the exact same thing in the exact same area and you don't have a way that's going to make you stand out, then you might not be as successful. You know, so you have to think about those things. A lot of people, um, I think, are in business because um, they just want to try to make some money and uh, they don't actually realize that it there's a lot of work that you have to put into it, a lot of research that you have to put into it. There's going to be a lot of setbacks and a lot of people are looking for that instantaneous like gratification. You're not necessarily going to get that. So um, there's a lot. Um, and yeah, I'm trying to start a business now myself. So I've been doing, I've been doing a lot of research. So uh, I've been doing a lot of research on it. So, um, so I'm figuring things out too. So I'm, Talk to myself when I'm talking to y'all. <laughs> One distinction I used to make with people a lot when they talked about I want to start a business and we would kind of go through all their stuff and what they've already done. The one thing we you always ended up talking about was the difference between being self-employed and being a business owner. And I think uh, what a lot of people don't realize that they're self-employed. Um, they have an employer. It might be them, but they're all the mechanisms of being an employee come completely to the foreground when you are self-employed. When you are a business owner, that is a really different mechanism. You have to live in the space in a very different way. But self-employment um, is you get all of the, you get the freedom to like make your own schedule, but that usually means you're working 80, 90 hours a week because you're trying to make up the difference that a, a traditional employer would have made. Um, you don't get any of the health insurance benefits. <laughs> you just There's a lot of, and again, like having a conversation that not everybody's built for, for entrepreneurship. Not everybody's built to be a business owner. Some people are fantastic at being in support roles for businesses that already exist. Um, that's where they shine. That's where their talents show up. Um, so it's like understanding who you are and what you have to contribute is something else. Um, and again, like starting a business because you are feeling economic pressure or you're feeling an economic squeeze personally. I want, I need to make more money. So I'm going to start a business. I'm like, that's the worst way to make more money is starting a business, especially if you ain't got no money. Like, that's just not how that works. Um, and it's, it's for me, like, I, so people kind of go, yeah, well, I did this. And I'm like, well, you became self-employed, but you didn't necessarily start a business because that's a different, that's a different mechanism. It's a different play. It's a different field to play on at that point. And mm -hmm. so talking to people about economic security and financial stability and what that looks like as a business owner or someone who is self-employed or maybe who's a freelance person or whatever that looks like, um, I think having honest conversations about just where we are with our personal economics and our collective economics could also help people make better choices about maybe I'm not ready to start my own business right now, but in five years, if I make these particular decisions and make these kind of moves, I can start something. And so we, I, I just think people just jump all in and go, hey, you know, my soaps were selling really well during the holidays. I'm going to throw it all away and sell soap. And you're just like, you're not Bath and Body Works or Lush. So I don't, what's your plan? Yeah. Well, I was just gonna sell soaps on inter on the internet on 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 Instagram and make a couple of reels, and you're just like, okay, um, we need to have more honest conversations with each other. So, so because I'm like, I like you mentioned the freelancer, self-employed business owner. I don't know what I'm in. I am at this point. Yeah, I'm just like going with the flow. So it's great to have these conversa conversations talking about this because, I, I, like you said, Tiffany, a lot of people. They say they're business owners, self-employed, but they still don't know what they're doing. And I'm, I had to learn the hard way. So if there is, there are resources for us to like utilize, I know that we are all like fellow entrepreneurs on the way of being there or supporting other black entrepreneurs. I pray and hope that we'll be able to come together and use those resources to help us thrive and just don't gatekeep as we said in the first episode, share the, yeah. way, share the knowledge. 
You know, one thing I will say, I, I just think that we, no one should, this is my own personal belief. I don't think no one should work for anybody for 40 plus hours a week for 20, 30 plus years of their life and not have no ownership of that business. Like that shit is just out the window for me. Like I just would never do that. And I think the way in which we do that or which we change that is by co-ops. I think the concept of everybody who works there owning the parts of that company, it can be a small part. It doesn't matter. Like we all have to figure out, like, I think ownership is important for everybody. And it doesn't have to mean that everybody has to be the CEO or that big head figure and do all, make all the decisions. But it means that like in the profits of this company, everybody has an equal or not, maybe not even equal, but everybody gets a piece of the pie and everybody gets to come to the table to make decisions for this company. And I think that's where we really have to get to as as black people in America, because, again, we're we're so far behind in the sense that, like you said, these companies, Gucci and them been running for hundreds of years. So we're so far behind. Yes, we can be that. You can aspire to have that. But you're running 100 years behind with all the forces that's trying not to let you do it and that doesn't want you to do it. And yet we still prevail in most cases, but it has to be more of us together collectively doing it for it to really work. So I think that's just the most important thing, because if we want the prosperity that we say we want, lastly, I would say, if we want the prosperity that we saying that we want, we want to be rich, we want to have this money, it will not happen by you working from nine to five. It just won't. I disagree. I have to firmly disagree with you, Victor. And although I do hear you as a person that's getting ready to retire from the state of California after 20 years of service, I am going to draw a pension for life. Um, healthcare, 100% um, paid premium. And I do own several properties and I've been able to leverage my income as a state employee to buy real estate over the years and to level up. And so like Skylar said, there's a way to do both. If you can work for somebody. And so now my pension is going to outlive what's actually in the bank account, right? Because of the way the state pension is set up. It's not my fault. I'm just in it. Right. Um, you know, so you can win sometimes. So I think it's strategic. I think we got to be careful about telling folks not to put in 20 or 30 years of service somewhere, because that's how a lot of our um, uh, ancestors were able to pass on generational wealth to us by, you know, putting in that work, drawing a pension, owning property. And so while I do hear you, there is space to do both. I've also been an entrepreneur and a property owner for the past 20 years as well. An entrepreneur as well, that's kind of helped fuel my property ownership. So like Skylar said, maybe do both if you can get you a cool job with a nice pension and retirement benefits and hustle that side hustle. You know, there's multiple ways to to build wealth. I think I think there is. But I also think that um, in relation to the, the people that own that business or own or or have like say so in those schools, it's not it's a blip in it's a blip in the big C into what they get. And I think that's the part I think I'm saying, I guess, in relationship to the people that own those business, like we don't really make that much. Like even if they're if they're paying LeBron James a billion dollars to stay with Nike over the rest of his lifetime, how much do I have to think that Nike is going to make? But is that always the goal? You know, do we always want to have that much or do we want to be able to have enough to do the things that we want to do and support others in our own way? Not everyone wants to get to the status of billionaire. Absolutely. You're absolutely right, Skylar. Let me just say this. Everybody knows I moved to Alabama. Why am I moving to Alabama? Because the house there is paid off. Right. And we'll have no bills. I'd rather live in Alabama and be stress free and free economically than stay in Oakland. Dodging bullets and sideshows and struggling to maintain a $5,000 a month price point to keep my family here in Oakland. And so at the end of the day, you have to think about what's best for you. We don't care 
what other folks are doing, but we care, you know, we care what other folks are doing, but collectively as a community, you have to kind of work on you. And I'm moving into an all black community. And so that gives me an opportunity to take the knowledge and the resources and everything I've learned coming from California and infuse that into the deep South, into an all black community that's essentially becoming a ghost town. I mean, I would like to just say I I honor and respect your point of view, Victor, so much because I think there's a lot of courage and a lot of um, you know creativity and entrepreneurial spirit that I hear from you and saying that. And when we're talking about some of the other episodes, that's the kind of thing that we need to teach in the K through twelve. Because prior to some years ago, I probably would have been terrified of being an entrepreneur. Right. Like it really takes courage and planning and some comfort level that if I fall on my behind, I've got somebody to help. I don't have anybody to help. I don't have anybody to fall on my behind. So that nine to five is security for me. But my hope, my intentions of keeping that nine to five, doing some business stuff here, hopefully working myself out of the nine to five so that my boys then can thrive because I've set them up with what I know how to do best. So I'm a little I hear both sides. And I'm like digging this conversation. And I just wish that, you know, when I was 12 years old, I had the courage to think about being an entrepreneur from, from the very beginning. And I might've chosen a different route. So it goes back to our previous episode about K through 12 education. Um, and, but I just, I just, I love both, both sides of the story and just think that it's, um, you know, that young people should hear these conversations. I really, really I was gonna say because I think about like what if LeBron did that? What if LeBron said F Nike and made Bron LeBron, whatever that may be? Like, what would that do for like his community? So he can ask people to be he can ask people to be employed at Nike, and most time nine times ten he would do it, but he would never have to ask. So whatever he wants to do for his community in terms of like being able to support and give jobs and have structures that help his community, he would be able to do that. Not saying he can't now, but I just know that they make a whole lot of money off that brother, a whole lot of money off of him. And he's he's rich as I don't know what, but I guarantee the other folks is making triple that because you wouldn't do business with somebody if you're not going to make triple that. Well, I want to close this off on this note. Um, I think um, this conversation was very productive, especially with the different viewpoints and how we can view black entrepreneurship and just us being our own bosses or just, you know, being able to pave the way for generational wealth. And I want to say thank you all. This is the final episode of the town hall. And I really do appreciate you, you all's like viewpoints and takes. And that's just having a good time talking about these issues, which I wish, I really wish that we could do this more often. So this is the final episode, everyone. I want to thank you all so much for joining us. And this is the end. The town Hall on the Polaris Network. You all have a great evening. <laughs> thank, thank you for having us. All right, thank you.